Listen up, get ready, I'm not gonna take no more. There's a revolution, a revelation going on in my soul. Buckle up, get ready, we're not gonna sit back. Welcome all you citizens of the world. I'm Michael James here in Chicago with another edition of the Live from the Heartland show. This one is number 158 since the beginning of the pandemic when we were forced out of the studios at WLUW and went to uh, doing what we call Heartland at Home. It's the second in our fourth year, and we're really glad you're here with us. We're recording it on the 21st for the week of June 24th. And uh, I have three guests today. I'm going to have an old comrade from, uh, we're not only old, but we've known each other a long time, from Students for Democratic Society, Clark Kissinger. Also, uh, someone I haven't met yet, but I'm looking forward to it, and that would be Victor Salvo of the LGBT Legacy Walk. And then uh, a regular guest on the show usually talks politics. We're going to talk literature, the one and only Don Rose. So stick around for the next hour. However, you're getting this on YouTube, on the air, on WLUW, CAN TV. We're here for you, and you can get us a lot of ways. A little bit on the past week for me. I'm uh, I'm recovering from that fall I took in Texas. I did get to go back in the swimming pool, feeling pretty good. On Saturday, I went to a really wonderful event for uh, the late, great Pat Gleason. Uh, Pat Gleason, I knew her through Salcedo Press. I learned a lot more about her at the memorial that was held at the Irish Heritage Center. And, uh, you know, there were over 100 people there with wonderful things to say about Pat. She was a Chicago girl, w working class, grew up in Roseland. Her family had a bar. It was called Gleason's Tap. Uh, she ended up going down to University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, where she got involved with Students for Democratic Society. And she was one of the founders of Salcedo Press, who for many years really cranked out great printed matter for all kinds of groups working to make the world a better place. Uh, she was an educator. She was very smart. She was wonderful. She played the guitar. Uh, and I'm really sad that she's gone. But it was great to be with all of her comrades and friends and family and celebrate her life. This week also was Father's Day. And I had a pretty good time on Father's Day. I set up my front porch gallery. And then my son, Katie, and his girlfriend, Gina, picked me up. And we went to her parents for a wonderful cookout. And then Monday was Juneteenth. It's the second year we've celebrated it as a national holiday. And there were some great events all around the country. You know, this is the day that the Texas slaves finally learned a couple of years later that they were free. It happened in Galveston, Texas. Okay, so a little bit of information and news, things that caught my attention. Out in Montana, there's a group of 16 young people who have sued the state. They say that the state has ignored scientific evidence and continues to promote fossil fuels, worsening climate change. They say that uh, this violates their right to a, quote, clean and healthful environment, end quote, which is uh, written into the Montana Constitution. It was guaranteed in the Constitution. So this is an ongoing uh, trial, and we'll see how that works out. But it's great to see young people really taking it to them. My friend Al Koss, the photographer, who has a great book out called Fairs, which is shots he made in his cab over many years, turned me on to a thing called the Social Documentary Network that publishes Zeke magazine. 
you can find them on YouTube if you go to Social Documentary Network or the title of what Al sent me was From Tulsa to Minneapolis, Photographing the Long Road to Justice. That would be Al Koss sent me the link for Tulsa to Minneapolis, Photographing the Long Road to Justice. And it's, I think, 26 African-American photographers with pictures from all over the country during demonstrations and campaigns to right the wrongs of our nation. I recommend it very highly, and that's one of the things I like about doing this show is in getting information, I find new things and people turn me on to new things. On the not-so-good front, the gun violence continues to uh, plague our country big time, more than any other place, I think. And uh, we know that there were a lot of people shot and killed in Chicago. Across the nation, there were at least 132 people killed over the holiday weekend. This is not good, and we all have to make a lot more efforts to stop it. In memoriam, Daniel Ellsberg died, and those younger people may not remember, he was the one who worked at the Pentagon and released the Pentagon Papers exposing the United States military belief that they couldn't win the war in Vietnam. He took a lot of heat from it, but he also got a lot of people loving him forever. I think we may have a little information on him later when our first guest, Clark Kissinger, comes on. If he doesn't remember, what I read was that Ellsberg was at an SDS march on Washington back in the early 60s, and he met his first wife there, or somehow they linked up there. Also, our hearts go out to the Klonsky family, also the Enid family, you know, Mike and Sue Klonsky, Fred and Ann Klonsky, and all the kids have been on the show. They're uh, good friends of ours, and Sue's dad. Dr. Joseph Ennett passed away just on the 13th. He did a great thing, and we're really sorry that he uh, has passed away. Once again, our hearts go out to the Klonsky Ennett family. I think that's going to be it for the opening banner. We do have three guests, and they all have a lot to say. So we're going to take a little musical break, and we'll be right back with Live from the Heartland for the week of June 24th. Listen up, get ready, I'm not gonna take no more There's a revolution, a revelation going on in my soul Buckle up, get ready Hey, hey, we're back with more Live from the Heartland for the week of June 24th uh, in the year 2023. And as is a, a growing tradition on this show, we bring on former uh, and current comrades who uh, I know from way back in my political activities, this time with Students for Democratic Society, uh, it's one of our leaders from back in the day, Clark Kissinger, who now is in Georgia. But I remember him when he was here in Chicago as the National Secretary of SDS, uh, a guy who opened a gun store here in, in Chicago, who went on to uh, open uh, an organization or help found an organization in Rogers Park called Citizens for Independent Political Action. And that's what drew me to bringing you on, Clark, because I'm involved with a group called Network 49, mm. a progressive outfit in the ward. And every once in a while, I'm older than a lot of people, and I remember that there was a group up in this uh, neck of the woods that you were involved with. So without me running my mouth anymore, I'm saying hello to you, and how are you doing? I'm doing just fine. It's a lot, lot warmer down here in Georgia than when, when I lived in the north. It's cold here today. It's, I mean, it's yeah. in the sun, but it's cool. We're right by the lake, yeah. as you know. 
So uh, what have you been doing for the last 50 years? <laughs> <laughs> no, more like 60. Yeah, I remember I graduated from college in 1960. Um, wow. So I got uh, I got involved in, um, I guess, in, in, in SDS in like 62 because I, I, by that time, I was doing graduate work up at Wisconsin, and uh, somebody told me about some group called Students for Democratic Society, and this, I went to see this guy. He pulled a box out from under his bed, and it has full of mimeographed copies of the Port Huron Statement, <laughs> and so I got one, and I read it, and I was actually pretty impressed. Um, three things that, that struck me in it. Uh, one was the idea that students could actually have agency. Um, in the 50s, when I was in college, politics meant like play, playing in the sandbox of student government. Um, and the other, th another thing that struck me was a, a call for uh, politics based on morality. And um, a third thing that uh, that uh, that attracted me was anti-anti-communism. Uh, that was in the thing. I mean, none of us were communists then, but we knew what. Uh, pernicious role that anti-communism and McCarthy period had played in the in the period that we had just gone through. Um, the end of the Port Huron statement was a, a call to realign the Democratic Party. <laughs> and everybody prom. I mean, hey, Nixon finally did it. Um, but the um, <laughs> you know no, nobody paid much attention to that. And by the end of '64. The Democratic Party was a dead letter because the first urban rebellion had occurred. The Mississippi Freedom Party was kicked out of the Democratic Convention, and and um, Lyndon Johnson had done the Bay of Tonkin hoax. So uh, we were off and running at that point. Uh, tell us a little bit about that March on Washington back in the day, the first one where I think Paul Potter gave a big speech. Right. Uh, I wasn't there, but it uh, you know I found out from. I learned about SDS through the college press service, mm -hmm. uh, and I had Legion read press about. Service. Yeah, I read about a meeting on Hazard of uh, unemployed miners, the Northern Student Movement, SNCC, and SDS, and it kind of captured my imagination. Then at Berkeley, while surrounding a, a police car with Jack Weinberg in it during the free speech movement, right? I found a piece of paper on the ground that was "Build the Interracial Movement of the Poor." Uh, it talked about the uh, economic research and action projects, including JOIN, where I came to work. That's when I knew about you, and you were in the national office. Right. Well, you ask about that uh, March on Washington. Up till that point, uh, really, nobody had done anything about the war in Vietnam. I mean, it was, uh, I actually went to an anti-Vietnam War demonstration as early as 62, I believe, when Madame New visited the United States. But uh, this was the Democrats' war. And uh, so most progressive people sort of kept their mouths shut about it and went along with it. And um, SDS had a meeting in the in December of 1964. And um, somebody made a proposal that we do a march on Washington against the war. And uh, uh, I.F. I Stone was actually at the meeting and spoke. Uh, it was a, a kind of a historic thing, and there was a lot of debate about, is that what we should really do or not? And uh, in the end, we we did it, and it was very important, and it was the first major manifestation. Not was not the first demonstration against the war, but it was the first national-level manifestation. 25,000 people marched up the mall um, against the war, and it was it was a very significant thing. The other thing that was significant about it is it was done on a non-exclusionary basis. It's probably hard to 
realize today, but back in those days, uh, if uh, somebody, one of the mainstream organizations called uh, an anti-war demonstration, any alleged communist organization was not allowed to participate. Um, we did away with rules like that and said, hey, anybody that's opposed to the war is welcome to come. Well, Clark Kissinger, you uh, went on uh, at the same time Join was going on in Uptown, and I'm thinking 66, 7, and 8. You you yeah. left uh, the national office, and you started a group or were involved in starting a group. I think Art Vasquez was one of the people. It was right. called Citizens for Independent Political Action. That's and right. it just so happens that it was in the 49th Ward where I reside today. <laughs> so tell us about what led you to do that, what you guys did. Uh, well, and then I think you ran for office, but you'll get that in there. I, I did. I'll get it in there. Um, but, you know, the 60s was a, a huge um, educational thing for me. I mean, I, I, I think I tried every version of reformism possible in the 1960s. <laughs> I, I went on demonstrations. I organized demonstrations. I voted for better candidates. I took part in civil disobedience. I... I later worked in a factory. I was elected a union steward. Uh, I ran for public office. I wrote exposés. And by the end of the 60s, it became clear that we lived in a system that could not be reformed. And what we had to do was actually to have a revolution. But this was this running for office and doing things like citizens for political action was independent political action was part of that learning process. We were inspired by what was the name of that guy that that ran for uh, Congress out in the in Berkeley and almost unseated a um, major liberal progressive out there and Bob Shear. Who? Uh, yes, Bob Shear. He was and the editor so, of Ramparts. Yeah. Yeah. People. People <laughs> said, "Wow, maybe we could actually." take on the Democratic Party from the bottom up and oust all those people and uh, and take it over somehow. Well, of course, you can't just walk in and take over ruling class parties. But we uh, we, we ran an independent anti-war candidate. I was a candidate for alderman. And of course, in the Chicago machine, the the aldermanic races, they are were held on odd numbered years not at not when congressional and presidential elections so there was an extremely low voter turnout nobody but whoever the poll workers got out but i am proud to say that i got a vote in every single precinct of the 49th ward and um, i was running against paul wagoda i don't know whether you remember that name i remember that name yeah <laughs> and although i lost paul wagoda ended up going to prison um for, on some sort of you know financial hanky panky but um, one of my favorite uh, uh, campaign photographs is a picture of me standing in front of the 49th Ward Democratic Party office, pointing to it, and the, the caption was, Kissinger investigates blight in the 49th Ward. Nice. Well, tell me the kind of work you were doing then. I mean, uh, I used to think of Rogers Park and the 49th Ward as kind of more middle class, I, you know, oh, living in Uptown. Today, Absolutely. it's really multi-class, multi-racial, um, you know, probably larger. I always say there are larger concentrations of more diverse racial, ethnic, and religious group than anywhere else. But my kid claims Queens and New York more so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, we have, well, it, it was also something of a university community because of Loyola and right. Mundelein College, which was independent at that time. And... Um, Probably the the heart of the progressive community was actually north of Devon, 
uh, and, and the northern end of the ward at that time. Uh, but uh, we were out on the streets everywhere, you know, campaigning against the war and calling on people to uh, strike a blow against your real enemy. And uh, I guess my, my campaign slogan was, when a machine short changes you, kick it. And uh, we, uh, a lot of people, you know, got in, got involved in it. And uh, it, it was, a, it was um, interesting. And like I said, and it was part of that learning process about how you can't change society. Well, we've gotten a little bit of uh, you getting involved in the movement. And uh, why don't you give us a short synopsis of some of the things that you think were important that would uh, are still important today that, and what people might do around them? I'm particularly interested in uh, older uh, progressives sharing their experiences and encouraging younger people to learn from our mistakes or pick up where we left off. Well, as I said, I think at the end of the 60s and then going into the 70s, I, I basically made a break with idealism um, and said, hey, look, you really have to get practical. And the we live in a world today where um, there's we don't live in a, a world of scarcity anymore. It's it's in the in the history of the human race. It's a it's an amazing thing to no longer live in a in a world where there's no reason for anybody to not have enough food to eat or have medical care or whatever. The only reason that the majority of the people of the world don't have that is an economic and political system of capitalist imperialism, and until that is overthrown. We are not going to be able to make significant social changes. And this, I, I learned that by, you know, I had some important experience with the Black Panther Party. Um, I went to China very early in 1972, got to see what alternatives might actually look like. Um, and ever since then, I have been working in, uh, in that direction. Um, we live now also in a, 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 a particular time where we have two enormous threats that we have to take on. One is the destruction of the climate um, and the entire planet. Uh, and it is a problem that simply cannot be resolved under capitalism. And uh, the other thing is the threat of fascism, which is uh, very, very real in this um, in this country. I, I, uh, I did, in fact, come out and voted in 2020 for the first time in 50 years. Uh, because for, it wasn't an it was not an election between um, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. It was a, a question of whether we would have a fascism implemented very quickly in this country, or whether we would still continue to have a chance to to fight against it. So these are the things that uh, continue to motivate me up up to this uh, up to this point. And um, I also uh, studied and learned a lot. I, uh, you know, I spent a lot. Of, originally, I, I went back and I read all the, um, I read Marx and <laughs> I read Lenin and I went to China and I read Mao. And, and today I read the contemporary communist writers like Baba Vakian and people who are really grappling with what would you have to do if you really wanted to do it? If you really wanted to save the planet, if you really wanted to make a society in which people would want to live and could live and fu live fulfilling lives, what would you actually have to do? What would the what would the practical steps be? And so these are the questions that I engage with today. Uh, Clark, are you doing any writing? Um, I, I'm actually a little bit like you trying to do some videography now. So maybe you can see my camera in the background there. Nice. Um, <laughs> um, because really, you know, the... Uh, uh, the world is, is uh, for better or for worse, moving away from writing. 
And, um, you know, the young revolutionaries that I work with today are putting stuff on TikTok every week. I mean, it's uh, no one, no wonder the establishment wants to get rid of TikTok. Um, but uh, I, I think I think that's kind of the wave of the future. I think it's uh, it's uh, video is the way that more and more political communication is and will be taking place. Well, we're going to have you back on uh, probably more often than you've been on. Uh, but let me, one thing that uh, I thought of, I know that uh, you're a little cautious around the voting question, and mm -hmm. I had sort of two things. I wanted to, uh, in Georgia, which is a real battleground state, and I think in standing in opposition to uh, fascism, uh, where you did elect two Democratic senators, I'm wondering about the SNCC Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee legacy in that state. And then uh, if we got time, maybe your thoughts on uh even though, uh, you know, it's part of the uh, imperialist uh, democratic process. Uh, what about democratic socialists kind of uh, emerging in some cities? Like we have, I think, nine people in our new city council who are DSA type people. Well, I, I think that's a, a topic for a whole nother discussion. But um, I wish I could say that there was a, a, a SNCC legacy in Georgia. But frankly, I... Uh, I haven't seen it. I don't. I don't. Don't see it. I was actually down. I visited Atlanta and went to a, a visited the SNCC office in the early '60s. I went. I was a. I think I joined Friends of SNCC in '59 or something like that, and I went to a, a SOC conference. You remember the Southern Student Organizing Committee? Yeah, um, I remember. Yeah, you know thing things like that. So it's a um, uh, in a certain sense that willingness to. Put your body on the line and uh, stand up for what is right is uh, um, something that's not so much with us anymore. And uh, the, the the problem at this point with I thought it was important in 2020 to um, because I we ha we bought ourselves we bought ourselves some time. Let's put it that way. We did. Um, we bought four years, but unfortunately, most of that has been squandered by people getting ready for doing another round of electoral cretinism. And uh, the Democratic Party uh, simply cannot be counted on to stop fascism in this country. And as a matter of, I mean, you know, what would happen if, if uh, we went through another election like this and Trump called on his people to uh, march on Washington? Hey, that they would come armed. Uh, I know what it's like down here, and I know there's the preparations going on everywhere for a civil war in this country. And the Democratic Party will fold in front of that like a wilted flower. Uh, so we really have to get much more serious in terms of the type of movement that has to be built if we are going to uh, to uh, save ourselves and to to, to save the future. Well, I really appreciate that, and it's an ongoing debate in my own head. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this is an official invitation for you to come back on Live from the Heartland and they're not too far off. And uh, it's really been great talking to you, Clark. And, uh, you know, it's even better than uh, that STS email thing that we go back and forth on with a lot of people. This way I get to see you, talk to you. So uh, do you have a, a website or a way that people can reach you if they want to uh, see things that you're doing? Sure. Uh, it's dissident.info, D-I-S-S-I-D-E-N-T dot I-N-F-O. Okay, brother. You have a great day and keep doing good in the world. We'll see you, and thanks for coming on live from the heartland. Thank you.
All right, everyone, stay close here to your radios or to your TVs, however you're getting the show. We do it a lot of different ways or your computer. And we're going to come back in a few minutes with Victor Salvo, the director and founder of the Legacy Project. And we're going to hear a little bit about what he's got going on. So hear a little music. We'll be right back. Listen up. Get ready. I'm not going to take no more. There's a revolution, a revelation going on in my soul. Buckle up. Welcome back to Live from the Heartland for the week of June 24th. This is number 158 since the beginning of the pandemic. And I'm really honored to bring on someone who I haven't uh, ever met before, but I've been learning about him and the good work he does. It's the one and only Victor Salvo, the co-director and co-founder of The Legacy Project. Uh, how are you, Victor? I'm doing very well. How are you, Michael? I'm good. How about telling uh, the listeners, the viewers, uh, about the Legacy Project? Well, the Legacy Project is an education and cultural charity that's devoted to um, celebrating the contributions LGBTQ people have made to world history and culture, and to use that information as a tool to um, counter the ignorance which underlies bullying, uh, both in the classroom and in society. Aha. Uh -huh. And how long have you been around and doing this? Uh, we, uh, I'd say we started work in earnest probably in 2008, uh, incorporated in 2010, and uh, never, never looked back from that point. So, Well, what led you to do it? Uh, I think I read somewhere that you had been thinking about doing this sort of thing for a long time. You were involved in uh, other work, and then you took this on, and you've done a lot of stuff. Uh, yes, uh, I, I was involved heavily in electoral politics and in early uh, gay activism, shall we say, going back to the, the time of the AIDS crisis, and was inspired at the National March on Washington for uh, what we referred to at that time as lesbian and gay civil rights. We had not quite matured enough to embrace the B and the T and the Q and, and all the other alphabets uh, that came upon it afterwards. but. At that particular march, um, I was inspired by the first installation of the Names Project, um, AIDS Memorial Quilt. And it was there that um, you know several things happened at that march. It was the first time there had been a protest at the Supreme Court. It was on the heels of a horrible Supreme Court decision, uh, which essentially made uh, gay sex illegal in the United States, and that happened in 1986. And we were also um, embarking on the first time we recognized uh, what would become known as National Coming Out Day, where we were expected to embrace our shared history. And the problem was none of us knew what it was. And I kind of put it all together and thought to myself, you know, we're living history right now is unfolding right in front of us. There were 800,000 people at that march. And now there's a plague that's going to kill every single person here. Yet we're asked to remember our legacy. None of us knows what it is. Who's going to remember who came before us when we're gone if we don't know ourselves? So that was the catalyst of, of my idea to create an outdoor space complete with bronze memorials that would mark contributions that we had made throughout history um, as a way to share the information with future generations, because we truly believed we were all going to die, that there, there was no thought of a cure. 
or um, any kind of getting to zero uh, thing at that time. We really, we well, really. Sure. Well, one of the things I don't I don't know about that Supreme Court decision. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? That in '87, the Supreme Court basically outlawed gay sex. Uh, uh, it was the Hardwick. It was the Hardwick decision in 1986. Actually, it came down in June of '86. Um, that was uh, predicated on there was no. Ultimately, the the reading was there was no constitutional right to engage in sodomy. Therefore, it was perfectly legal for any state um, so inclined to make effectively gay sex illegal in that state. And um, many states still had and still have their sodomy laws on the books. So this happening at the exact same time that AIDS was starting to kill us um, sent a very powerful, very complex message both to us and to society at large. And considering that gay people had always been, um, because of being closeted, the only knowledge of us was always predicated on a sex act. Um, we were reduced to a sex act in the minds of most people, and then that sex act was rendered illegal. So it it essentially negated our right to exist. Is that law still on the books? I mean, is or did the Supreme Court ever do anything better than that? I mean, it's been rough lately. Um, in two thousand three, um, the Lawrence decision, Lawrence v. Texas, overturned Hardwick, and that was the case that was the first time um, LGBTQ people were categorized as a quote class of persons which is an extraordinarily important legal distinction because it rendered us to be to being thought of as a protected class the same way race, age, gender, and all these other things are, are typically considered to be protected classes. So when Lawrence was ruled, it overturned hard work, but it was 17 years in between the two court decisions. And today there are, I believe, still 14 states uh, that never removed their sodomy laws from their state statutes. And I know that um, one of the principal targets of the current Supreme Court is to reinstate sodomy uh, laws uh, in the United States by striking down the Lawrence decision, because Lawrence was predicated on the right to privacy, and the right to privacy was, was um, an evolution of Roe v. Wade. Now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, there technically no longer is a right to privacy in the United States. So um, they're going to make those sodomy laws um, active again in those 14 states. And from there, you will see the move to overturn um, same-sex marriage because same-sex marriage will be predicated upon a, a sex act that's illegal in those states. Um, so wow. this this is uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, I've been paying attention for a long time. Um, this is none of this is an accident. Uh, you know, as the father of two gay kids, um, I'm I'm really always interested in learning more and more. And I know about Stonewall. I wondered if there's any uh, sort of sh Chicago history that you might want to share about uh, gay activism in this city. Uh, you know, to a place now where we had we had a. Uh, you know, a gay mayor, we have plenty of, uh, it just seems like there are a lot of gay people around and doing good stuff. Uh, how did that come to be? 
Um, Chicago gay history is actually extremely rich and has been punctuated by certain things, not the least of which, of course, was the AIDS crisis here in Chicago, which reshaped the community politically um, and turned it into a political powerhouse from which everything else that has happened has flowed. Um, we also, uh, you know, in the, in the early days, just even going back to the time of Stonewall, um, interestingly enough, the year after uh, the Stonewall riot, when the first, technically the first gay pride parades all took place um, in Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, and San Francisco to commemorate the one year anniversary, uh, actually Chicago's took place first. Uh, all the other cities did them on one day and Chicago's was a day earlier. So technically speaking, Chicago actually hosted the very first gay pride parade in the country. Um, and uh, there's a group in Chicago that's moving to have that, uh, the location of where that started in Bug House Square, um, to have a memorial uh, place there and to have that site declared a historic landmark uh, for that reason as the site of the first gay pride parade in the country. Uh, but Chicago, um, you know, we're very different than New York and, and Los Angeles and in Washington, D.C. It has a lot to do. We have an appreciation of history, which I think is because of the Chicago fire. Um, so many people were were wiped out and so much history was lost. We have an extremely diverse uh, community as far as multiple ethnicities um, and all of those groups who were impacted by the fire. Um, and we have a very much a, you know, roll up our sleeves and get it done kind of attitude. So when time came to really begin pushing for increased AIDS funding and all that, uh, the community finally stopped fighting amongst itself and found its voice and began to push forward changes, which eventually telegraphed throughout the entire state, making, in my estimation today, and I've, I've looked pretty closely at this, I would go so far as to say that Chicago is probably the most progressive city in the country. Um, and Illinois is is easily in the top three, if not the most progressive state in the country. No, I agree with that. And, uh, you know, I love this city and the people who are making it a better and better place. Uh, one of the reasons that we had you on is because uh, we learned about the Legacy Walk, mm -hmm. which is uh, an outdoor public display that um, is, I don't know what the status of it is right now, but on North Halstead Street. How about telling us about that and how that project uh, will uh, celebrate LGBTQ contributions to the world and to culture in general? Uh, the Legacy Walk was um, the inaugural dedication took place in October of 2012, actually on the 25th anniversary of the day the idea had been conceived. So the walk now um, is fully complete. It's a half mile long on both sides of the street, so a mile altogether. Uh, and consists of 49 um, bronze memorials, soon to be 51, because we're adding two more this year, um, bronze memorials recognizing LGBT contributions to world history and culture. So um, it is there. It was declared a historic landmark in 2019. We do uh, tours on a regular basis, and um, it's a great place to come and learn about an aspect of history most people don't realize is missing. Is there a website where people can learn more about it that you would share with us? Absolutely. Go to www.legacyprojectchicago.org. And 
pour yourself a cup of tea or a glass of wine and prepare <laughs> to enjoy yourself. There's hundreds and hundreds of pages on the website. Um, and you'll have a, a wonderful time discovering people, many of whom you've already heard of and knew about but did not know. They were part of the LGBTQ community and people you've never heard of who did extraordinary things that you have heard of. You just didn't know that there was a queer person behind it. So they actually, uh, it, there's a tour people could take, but they could also walk up and down Halstead. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's free. It's open air. It's, it's, it's everything that I had wanted it to be from the very beginning. Uh, one of the things I that caught my attention being a sports fanatic was um, uh, there was an article on Outsports magazine uh, that the Cubs, not my favorite team, I'll confess, uh, <laughs> sponsoring a bronze memorial to honor the only openly gay man to have played Major League Baseball, Glenn Burke. I'm sure there are other gay fellows playing ball, um, but tell us a little bit about uh Glenn Burke and his induction into the Legacy Walk coming up. In the, in the 1970s, Burke um, was outed. Uh, he didn't come out to his team. He was actually outed. Um, he played for, I believe it was the Dodgers. And uh, he played for two teams, and he was only in the majors for four years altogether um, because the one team traded him to the other. Um, and he ended up being outed basically because he was believed to be in a relationship with Tommy, Tommy Lasorda's um, son. And uh, and word got around and he was tormented mercilessly on both teams. And he ended up quitting the majors. And uh, it's it's very, very sad story because he descended into a life of, of, of drugs and homelessness. Um, he eventually passed away from AIDS several years later, but he uh, actually kind of cleaned up his act and was a, an instrumental person in the first gay games um, that took place uh, in 1982. And um, he's recognized now as not only the first openly gay person to play in Major League Baseball, but he is also, believe it or not, the man who invented the high five. Um, he slapped a high five to Dusty Baker um, when Dusty was rounding and coming into home plate. And then Burke immediately after that hit his own home run and uh and no, no one had ever seen that gesture before and it's so he actually was credited with the creation of the high five well, that's a great story victor um let me uh you know these are short segments and there's a lot more to talk about so i hope that we'll get you back on the show oh, but sure. there are a couple of things that uh want you tell our both our listeners and our viewers about the, your textbook and the legacy wall uh, the Legacy Wall is our traveling installation. It's been to 45 cities across the United States since beginning its tour in 2017. It has 125 biographical elements on it. It's basically the size of a very large trade show installation. It, like the Legacy Walk, is digitally interactive and is connected directly to the, the database and the website, which is houses all of the uh, curriculum that has been created for the state of Illinois. Many people don't realize that the teaching of LGBTQ narratives historically um, is required in the state of Illinois, and we are the architects of that curriculum. And we're uh, now in the process of writing our first textbook, which will be the first of a series that will come out um, sometime in 2024. Uh, and it's called LGBTQ History Makers When They Were Kids. Well, you know, uh, one of the things, you know, we you mentioned earlier, uh, the gay marriage, and uh, it seemed to me that we were really on a, a positive direction 
Uh, a lot of people, uh, whereas they don't have like an, a Latino or a African American in their family, a lot of people have in their family or know someone who's gay, and we seem to make great strides. All of a sudden, in the last few years, particularly in this kind of Trumpian era, uh, we see a real pushback and uh, kind of the rise of fascist forces. I wonder if you have any comments on uh, where we're at and what people need to be aware of and to do going forward. That's a big one, but uh, give it a shot. Well, yes, it is a very big one. Um, and I'm somewhat reluctant to speak about politics just because we're a charity and we, we risk okay our um, charitable status to make a commentary. I will say that I have been through this before. Um, the gay community was never more vulnerable than when one out of every four gay men was dying. And uh, every single force in the country, political, social, religious, um, was poised against us. We have never been so hated, so marginalized, so crippled, so behind the eight ball as we were during the AIDS crisis. Nothing that is happening today even remotely comes close to what was happening to this community during the AIDS crisis. We won. We won that war. We are the only group that has ever gone up against the religious right and won. So the issue why things are becoming what they are right now is because we have already won the culture war. That's over with. And now they're going after trans people and drag queens and going on about the children. And all that is really just because most people just don't know a trans person um, and they don't know anybody who does drag, you know, and generally speaking, whereas, as you said correctly, pretty much every single person in the country knows somebody who's gay, whether it's a relative or a friend or a coworker or whatever. So they can't really come after gay people overtly, though they will be. That, that, that's, and there's no real comfort there. They're just going after trans folks now because they're most vulnerable. Um, and all of this is really about, in my estimation, the attempt to um, convert the United States into a, a theocracy and, um, and to alter the Constitution literally into a form of Sharia law that uh, follows a very, very narrow and extremely conservative interpretation of, of biblical teachings. And uh, this is their last hurrah. This is it. The... 25% of people under the age of 24 are identifying as queer. 25%. That oh. is enough to carry. <laughs> that is enough to carry every election um, from from now going forward. If they do not succeed in in actually taking over this country um, in the next two to three years, let's say 2024 presidential election, it, and they have people in place all throughout the government, from the Supreme Court all the way down to the school boards. Um, if they do not succeed in taking over the country and dismantling the basic tools of democracy, they will never do it because they simply do not represent the majority of, of Americans. They don't even represent the majority of conservatives. Um, they are a very, very tiny sect with a great deal of, of outsized influence. And they're fighting for their existence because somehow they've convinced themselves that um, <clears throat> that they're, um, they're the ones being targeted. When the truth of the matter is, all they do is target other people. <laughs> so um, so I'm actually confident that that uh, we will win this fight. It's just going to be very long and it's gonna be very difficult. Um, and I think gay people are going to rise to the occasion and be extremely pivotally important on behalf of the entire country. 
No, um, they're pretty political. Most, yeah. I know my kids are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Victor Salvo, I really want to thank you for coming on live from the heartland. I hope to meet you in person. I'm sure we've been in the same room together, maybe at some same weddings. Uh, but I'm going to look forward to having you back on the show because there's a lot more to talk about. Great. I look forward to it as well. Thank you so much for having us on. Happy thank time. you. And everyone stay tuned here on the left end of your dial if you're listening to it on the air or streamed. Uh, we'll be right back with more Live from the Heartland. We've got Don Rose coming on. He's not going to be talking politics like usual. We're going to talk about literary deaths. We'll be right back with more Live from the Heartland. Listen up. Get ready. I'm not going to take no more. There's a revolution, a revelation going on in my soul. Buckle up. Welcome back to Live from the Heartland for the week of June 24th. Uh, we are recording it on the 21st. Uh, and it brings me a lot of pleasure once again to bring on someone who has been so gracious to come on this show every time he's been asked. Uh, usually we talk serious politics. Uh, I know that literature and politics do mix sometimes, but we're going to focus on literary deaths today. So once again, I present Don Rose. <laughs> Hello, Don. How are you today? I am wonderful. Always glad to join you when I can. Um, I, I took a little, uh, you know, on my weekly column, which is 98% politics. I do an occasional thing on art or this and that, an occasional book review. Uh, it uh, uh, struck me uh, a, a few days ago that uh, uh, three literary giants uh, have uh, uh, all died uh, just within a month of each other. Um, uh, uh, Martin Amos, who uh, many people think is uh, was the, uh, the greatest living um, uh, British writer, who was a, a great fan of uh, American writers. Uh, his favorite his his favorite writers of all were uh, <clears throat> Saul Bellow and uh, uh, Vladimir Nabokov, who considered himself an American, even though he was Russian born. Uh, anyway, uh, um, Martin Amos died. Uh, on May 19th, he was 73, the youngest of the three deaths. The, uh, 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 and then uh, on June 13th, uh, uh, someone who many, many people consider the greatest living American writer, I, you know, I, I could have uh, supported that concept, um, uh, 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 Cormac McCarthy, uh, uh, died at age 89, just on the verge of being 90, catch, trying to catch up with me. <laughs> He'll never catch me. <laughs> <laughs> and then the day after uh, McCarthy died, a uh, lesser known figure, uh, Robert Gottlieb, um, who was uh, considered one of the great literary editors of our time, uh, uh, who edited uh, Nobel Prize winners and, and John Le Carre's uh, 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 international thrillers and uh, 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 Lauren Bacall's autobiography and uh, just a, a, a huge wide range of books. Um, he, he died. Uh, he was also, by the way, uh, the editor of The New Yorker for five years, which is, you know, many people consider the best general interest magazine we've ever had. And he uh, kept the standard. And then uh, he ran into a dispute with uh, the, the new uh, the new owner of uh, um, 
all all the magazines in that group. So anyway, uh, let uh, me okay. ask you: the un, the only guy I know in this group uh, that I've read is Cormac McCarthy, and I uh, I know uh, when I go to El Paso and I first started going down there just after twenty oh two, I think it was. Uh, people would show me where he had lived. And then I read a couple of his books. I read um, Blood Meridian. And I got to say that as much as people talk about the great prose of this guy, to me, all I can remember is Dead Indians. I mean, it was just the most gruesome book I think I'd ever read. Uh, your take on McCarthy, yeah. Cormac McCarthy. Well, uh, Cormac <laughs> McCarthy... Uh... I, I, th I think uh, maybe I summed it up in my column when I referred to him uh, as the poet laureate of American violence and <laughs> our violent underbelly. And he was one of those people, along with uh, uh, Larry McMurtry, to uh, um, turn around uh, uh, to turn around the whole concept of the old West that we used to have and of the cowboy legend that we used to have. Uh, and uh, uh, expose, as in uh, uh, Blood Meridian, uh, the killing of the Indians, but he was also, um, as he went on, I think many people might have seen the movie. No and, Country for Old Men, no yeah. No Country for Old Men. And um, you remember that uh, uh, Javier Bardem uh, won, uh, and a lot of people were worried about the character he played. He was a, a cold-blooded murderer who chose gruesome ways to kill people and won an Academy Award for that thing. Now, I, I know a lot of people can't read uh, uh, about violence and uh, uh, don't like to go to movies that are violent and so on. Um, I, I grant that that's very difficult as I say, oh, I used to say on TV before a, a bloody scene, uh, uh, this is gonna be a little difficult to watch or it's hard to watch. but. Uh, um, um, his whole uh, late work from Blood Meridian on was devoted to the violence, the the uh, ugly violence of the Old West. Although he had one uh, 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 big, big bestseller, uh, uh, and um, uh, uh, the road was that the one that I'm sorry, the the road the the road sold well. That was a dystopian novel where you know you're going through. Uh, uh, the ruins of Earth as it's gone. Uh, um, you know, I, I was referring to all the pretty horses, which oh, okay. I think was his um, uh, first book after uh, Blood Meridian, and it turned out to be uh, a, a very big hit. It was um, uh, well, somebody put it that uh, for the first time he wrote a book about uh, somebody you could cheer. As a, as a protagonist, because all of his other protagonists were uh, uh, not people you'd want to spend a lot of time with, you know. Uh, but uh, it was a a, a wonderful uh, story, uh, upending. You know, it had its it had its violent moments, but not uh, uh, to the extent that Blood Meridian or The Road uh, has. Um, the Road is a very uh, very dystopian book. Uh, but it also it also made made a movie, and uh, it seems to me that it was one of three or four um, rather interesting uh, books by serious writers about you know the end of the earth <laughs> uh, or the end of civilization on the earth. 
And um, there is no question that his style is absolutely brilliant. He started writing um, in a more, uh, uh, when he was living in the South, he started writing um, what was Southern regionalism that was derived from William Faulkner. <clears throat> and his prose was a little closer to Faulkner's. He wasn't an imitator, uh, but you could tell that it was derived from uh, the kind of biblical writing that uh, uh, Faulkner did. I, I personally feel that Faulkner is still the greatest American novelist of the last century, uh, but that's always debatable. That was uh, something I used to talk about with James Baldwin many, many years ago. We had more, we, we, I think we had more discussions when I knew him in Paris, and I think we had more discussions about Faulkner than we did about race. <laughs> and, wow. <laughs> uh, um, of course, he was. This was when he was uh, coming out as a as a, as a novelist. He had just published "Go Tell It on the Mountain," so we really talked talked a lot of literature, and that's what he wanted to talk about. All uh, right. Well, Don Rosa, tell us a little bit about uh, Martin Amos and Robert Gottlieb. Uh, maybe more Robert Gottlieb because uh, he's an uh, American, and I'm more likely to probably read that, but. Uh, these are guys I don't know a lot about. So give us a little bit what you want to share. Well, he, uh, for one thing, he edited uh, uh, the novels of uh, one of our truly great American writers, uh, Nobel Prize winner, uh, Toni Morrison. Uh -huh. so, you know, bid fair to become, uh, uh, you know, it, we don't know to what extent he shaped his novels, but he also, you know, he also uh, uh, edited another Nobel Prize winner, uh, uh, V.S. Naipaul, who's a totally different writer, you know, British writer. And um, the, 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 the funny story that uh, people remember about him is, <laughs> I, I guess there's two funny stories. One of them uh, is the fact that he had a uh, novel from a, uh, a young uh, uh, World War veteran uh, with a, a, a manuscript uh, uh, that was called Catch 18. And uh, he thought it was a very good book, a very funny book. I think it's possibly one of the funniest books I've ever read at the same time as it's a tragic book <laughs> about you know, what happens in that war. And um, it turned out that another uh, sort of a pop writer, uh, I forget his name, was coming out with a book called Myla 18. And so... Um, Gottlieb says, we got to change the name of your book so there won't be any confusion. And how about Catch-22? Right. <laughs> stuck, stuck and rung a bell. <clears throat> the other great story about him uh, was that uh, he received a million-word uh, manuscript from Robert Cairo, um, C-A-R-O, who many people know has written uh, this monstrosity, <laughs> I should monstrously sized, uh, a four-volume bi biography of Lyndon Johnson, but this was his first book, uh, um, and it was about a, a great character uh, who who ran New York. It was called the Power Broker, uh, which today is uh, considered one of the truly great biographies uh, in, in the English language. Uh, and what uh, uh, Gottlieb did was cut 400,000 words, almost a half a million words out of a, a, a million word uh, uh, 
uh, book, How to the Power Broker. And uh, uh, Cairo, I'm sure, uh, was pained at every cut, but what he wound up with was uh, um, almost a work of genius. So uh, he was, you know, one, one of the, uh, um, we don't really hear too much about uh, uh, about book uh, editors and so on, unless they come out and they wind up with a, a string of people uh, uh, that you say, well, there must be something there if uh, if you can bring us some of these books. So um, I, I just, well, I'm sorry. We're, about, we're running out of time. Well, I almost running out of words. Me, run out of words. You did great, Don, and I'll uh, I'll be in touch with you real soon. We'll talk more politics next time you're on. But uh, I like literature. I'm gonna uh, I might look at some of these books and read a little more Cormac McCarthy. Thanks for joining read us, Cormac McCarthy. Read all the pretty horses uh, uh, first, and that'll get you back into it. Okay, brother. Thanks a lot, and I want to thank everyone for tuning in and being a part of our listening audience, however you get this, by radio, online, on Can TV. I want to thank Clark Kissinger. I want to thank Victor Salvo, and I want to thank Don Rose. Uh, next week, I've got uh, some authors. It's an article in New Lines magazine about Andrew Tate and the far right in common cause with Islamists. And we'll also have Kelly Cassidy and do a little sports with Gordon Thompson. We encourage you all to do good in the world. The world needs all the good that you do, that I do, that we do together. All power to the people. Have a great week. Over and out. You're doing the best you can. Over the mountain, under the big blue sky, you got a dream awaiting. I can see it in your eye It may not come easy But you know you've got a friend I'll be by your side the entire ride Just let me hear you say amen Are you doing, doing Are you doing the best you can Tell me, are you doing?